A tiny baby's wail echoes around an almost empty church. The priest holding the child tries to hush its cries. A small group of adults standing in front of the priest shuffle their feet awkwardly. One of them sneezes. The church is thick with dust, built up in the many months since this holy building has been in regular use. The baby seems to sense the grown-up's unease. Its complaints grow louder and more plaintive. The priest decides to get things over as quickly as he can. He rattles through the Latin rites, dips his fingers in a little bowl of holy oil and dabs it on the baby's head. In next to no time, the baptism is over. The baby is handed back to its mother and its cries die down to little whimpers. The party hastens towards the church door. They wait while the priest fumbles with the heavy iron key to unlock it. Eventually the door creaks open and they return to the brightness of the open churchyard. The baby's gurgling now, quite happy. As well it should be. Having been baptised, its soul has been saved from eternal damnation in the fires of hell. Everyone else, though, is feeling a bit uneasy at what has just happened. None of them has known anything like this. Going to church used to be part of their weekly and even their daily routine. Yet this baptism was the first service any of them have been to for years. Since just before Easter 1208, England has been under interdict. That's a small, technical-sounding word for one of the most enormous and unwelcome shifts in medieval public life imaginable, short of being at war. Effectively, the English clergy have been ordered by the Pope to go on strike. No marriages, no funerals, no daily masses, no services to mark the high days and holidays that are a central part of the calendar. The only Christian ceremonies not banned are baptisms and the last rites for the dying. And this is all thanks to a dispute between the Pope and the Plantagenet ruler, King John. An interdict is one of the harshest sentences a Pope can lay on a realm. It effectively punishes every person living there for the misdeeds of their ruler. Without church services, people are denied access to God and his mercy. They can't be forgiven for their sins. They lose their main social hub besides the tavern. Their rhythm of life is disrupted in a way that is intended to be upsetting, frightening even. You could think of a papal interdict as something similar to the UN imposing harsh economic sanctions on a regime today. The aim is to turn the people against their ruler. And you'd think this sort of intervention would make an unpopular king like John sweat. You'd think he'd be worrying that his subjects will get so fed up of having their salvation meddled with that they will mutiny. But you have to ask... Will John care? Up to this point, he hasn't set much store by doing the right thing. There's that old whispered rumour about the Plantagenets that they're descended from the devil, 
literally. Remember the legend that John's great-great, quite a few greats grandmother was a habitual church dodger, and that when she was eventually forced to sit through a full service, she split in half, and a demon burst out of her body and flew out of the church window. In the years since he became king, John hasn't exactly countered the descended-from-the-devil narrative. He's murdered his nephew, Arthur of Brittany, stolen one of his subjects' wives, and starved a bunch of captive knights to death. Let's just say this guy has treated the Lord's commandments as a sort of clickbait bucket list of 10 fun rules you must break before you die. The Pope's interdict is laid on England in 1208. Despite the growing threat to his people's immortal souls, John lets the standoff run into 1209, then 1210, then 1211. It's an astonishing display of royal stubbornness, but John couldn't care less. This isn't just because he's an irreligious, diabolical swine. The real reason John is unbothered by an interdict is because he sees it less as a punishment and more as an opportunity. In this moment that should be a crisis, John is hatching a scheme to get filthy, stinking rich. As we heard last time, in 1206 John suffered the humiliation of having to call off a military invasion of France because he didn't have enough support from his barons or enough cash to do it without them. Now he sees a chance to fill his royal coffers with wealth beyond the wildest dreams of any king of England before him. And then he might finally be able to contemplate taking on Philip Augustus from a position of such overwhelming military strength that the French king will finally take him seriously. If that means he and everyone else in his kingdom might end up in hell, that's a risk he's willing to take. I'm Dan Jones, and from Sony Music Entertainment, this is History. A Dynasty to Die For, Season 3. Episode 5. The Road to Hell. In the 1930s, the Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin was asked whether he thought Roman Catholics could help Russia with the fight against Nazism. He famously replied, The Pope? How many divisions has he got? That remark has gone down in history as a pithy roast of the Catholic Church, highlighting the fact that, while Popes do command huge wealth and power, when it comes to fighting, they always get someone else to do it for them. Although in the Plantagenet era the church loomed much larger in people's lives than it did in the 1930s, I reckon King John would have identified with Stalin's comment. After all, John's family had a very mixed history with Rome. In recent years, relations have been pretty good. John's brother, Richard the Lionheart, was the most prominent crusader of his age, 
ploughing his wealth and time into the Third Crusade in the name of saving Christendom. But go back a generation, or another season of this podcast, and you'll remember that John's father, Henry II, was responsible for the murder of his Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Becket. He also offended the Patriarch of Jerusalem by refusing to travel to the Holy Land and defend it from Saladin. John's view of the church is much closer to his father's than his brother's. He's prepared to pay lip service to popes and bishops. He knows it's impossible to become a king without the blessing of the church. But John has no desire to be pushed around or lectured by arrogant churchmen, and he firmly believes that within his own realm, he's the boss. Simple as that. The trouble is, there's a new pope in town who very much takes issue with that idea. His name is Lotario dei Conti di Segni, but as pope, he goes by Innocent III. He's a brilliant theologian and writer with a keen legal brain. He was elected just before John came to the throne, in 1198, at the astonishingly young age of 37. More on that and the strange career of Innocent III in this week's subscriber episode. Innocent might be young, but he has an absolutely uncompromising view of papal supremacy. He believes that the Roman Church should be the number one authority in every Christian realm in Europe. In Innocent's mind, he's God's right-hand man on earth. He's the divine leader of the Catholic world, and when he speaks, even kings should tremble. It's not a massive surprise that before long, Innocent and John bump heads. The flashpoint is over what consistently seems to be the most divisive issue between kings and churches at the time, the Archbishop of Canterbury, or rather, a would-be Archbishop of Canterbury. It all starts when John's old Archbishop, the brilliant, level-headed Hubert Walter, dies. In theory, the clerics at Canterbury Cathedral have the right to elect Hubert's successor but they can't decide between two candidates, one guy called Reginald and another called John Gray, Bishop of Norwich, who's King John's pick for the job. Despite much tortuous wrangling, overseen by an impatient John, the Canterbury clerics can't come to a majority vote, so they send a delegation off to Rome to ask the Pope to choose for them. Innocent decides that, in fact, the best way to solve this deadlock is to impose a third candidate, his own man, an English academic based in Paris named Stephen Langton. So the Canterbury delegation obey the Pope, and while they're in Rome, they elect Langton. I mean, on paper, he's a good man for the job. He's a sober, highly educated theologian and an astute politician. He's one of the world's leading experts on the Bible. He's actually the one who first divides it into the chapters we still use today. Unfortunately, though, he's also one of the Pope's besties, not John's. So when word gets back to John that this has happened, he goes ballistic. He wanted his man, John Gray, elected, 
and he won't accept the humiliation of the Pope riding roughshod over what he thinks are his rights as king. Doing rather a good impression of his dad's anti-Beckett tirades, John raves that anyone who recognises Langton as Archbishop is dead to him, and he forbids Langton to enter England. And so the stage is set. John's refusal to accept Langton under any circumstances is a direct challenge to Innocent III to do his worst. Innocent is not the sort of man to let a challenge go. During his tenure as Pope, he has already launched several crusades, written strident works denouncing disobedience and lack of standards among Christian leaders, and is gearing up for a war on heretics in southern France. He's a gunslinger with an itchy trigger finger. And when John digs in his heels over Langton's appointment, Innocent's trigger finger does more than itch, it twitches. Then it fires one of his deadliest weapons. In 1208, he pronounces the interdict on England. Until John accepts Innocent's buddy Langton as Archbishop, the church is officially closed for business. Which brings us back to where we began. John and Innocent are in a Mexican standoff. England's churches are largely locked up and silent. John's subjects are denied spiritual guidance and comfort of the sort they've been used to for generations. Innocent is very pleased with himself. It should just be a matter of time before John backs down. After all, who would really dare to deny their people access to their faith? After a year, though, John hasn't budged. So Innocent adds another punishment. He personally excommunicates John, meaning that John himself is persona non grata in the church. Unless the sentence is lifted, John's immortal soul is damned, and anyone who fancies taking a pot shot at him will hear no complaint from the church. This, thinks Innocent, really ought to have John quaking in his boots. But John doesn't quake. For all his faults, there are times when he can really summon up the belligerence and fearlessness of his Plantagenet relatives. Innocent throws everything he's got at John, willing him to back down. John doesn't back down, he doubles down. Because the way John sees it, the Pope has done him the biggest favour he could possibly have imagined. When Henry III chose his royal advisers, he ended up with some very untrustworthy power grabbers, which led to poor management decisions, rebellions, and at least one person in prison. Why didn't he use Indeed? Well, Indeed wasn't around back then, but it is today. Indeed is the ultimate hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and matching technology that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. When I was hiring, I didn't use Indeed either and the process was very slow and stressful, so I wish I had. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's full of people celebrating their successes, but if the Plantagenets have taught us anything, it's that failing is much more interesting. So that's why I'm certain you're going to love the podcast How to Fail. The very brilliant Elizabeth Day invites guests on to talk about three of their biggest failures and what they've taught them about life. It's a great way to hear a new side to people you may think you know. Guests include Bernie Sanders, Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Stanley Tucci. Give it a try. Find How to Fail wherever you get your podcasts. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. John's scheme to use the interdict to make himself richer is both simple and effective. As soon as the interdict was pronounced, a year before John's personal excommunication, he'd ordered that almost all church property was to be taken into royal stewardship. At this point in the Middle Ages, the English church is phenomenally rich. And now, John is placing all of its possessions under the control of laymen. That is, people who aren't part of the clergy, who answer to him. From now on, church profits will be siphoned off as royal income. It's audacious. It's outrageous. By the standards of the day, it's totally immoral. But John does it anyway. In villages across England, his men move in to take control of church property. They go straight for the really valuable stuff. The church is a huge landowner and in any given area will employ dozens, even hundreds of people on farmland. So its institutions, especially monasteries, tend to own things like herds of sheep and barns full of grain. Within a matter of months of the interdict starting, Profits from all these church enterprises are being funnelled straight to John's treasury and the fund he's building for a war against Philip Augustus. This is very much not the way Innocent wanted things to go. He threatened John with the fires of hell, but the English king simply used that as an excuse to go on a robbing spree. For John, the interdict has proven to be the most marvellous windfall and, possibly, the key to winning back his French lands. So far from wanting to return his kingdom to the bosom of papal care, he's happy for it to live in the spiritual wilderness for as long as possible. The chroniclers of the day can't believe the cheek of it 
although to be fair they are all clergymen themselves, so perhaps not the most impartial observers here. The diplomat and churchman Peter of Blois describes groups of four peasants wickedly standing guard outside the clergy's barns, deciding who's allowed in or out, and making sure any valuable produce is sequestered by the crown. Gerald of Wales sees exactly what a nightmare the interdict is going to be for the English church. He describes it as a double wound. The suspension of divine worship damages the kingdom's collective soul, while John's pillaging of church wealth hurts the institution itself. But John goes further even than that. He knows that many churchmen in England are living with secret or not-so-secret wives or mistresses. He orders that these women, who one chronicler calls the clergy's mistresses, housekeepers and lady-loves, are to be more or less kidnapped and held for ransom. Finally, he lets it be known that England is not a safe place for senior clergy, particularly those who are a bit Italian. John puts word on the street that if anyone connected with Rome doesn't scarper pronto, then he's going to have their noses slit and their eyes torn out. Not surprisingly, there's a dash for the ports. Obviously, the Italians flee. Not far behind them are about three-quarters of England's bishops, who go to live in exile abroad. Some stay behind, either out of loyalty to their people or because they can't afford to leave. But those who do stay are taking their lives in their hands. According to one later chronicler, albeit one very hostile to John, the king issues a royal pardon to a highwayman who's murdered a priest on a public road. Yet alongside all this harsh treatment, John also acts cannily. He doesn't try to keep all the church's property permanently. Once he's confiscated it, he often grants it back to the clergy, on condition that they pay him a fat fine for the privilege, then continue to contribute heavy taxes to his coffers. When bishops leave, John doesn't pursue them outside the realm. He simply claims all the profits of their bishoprics for himself. Nor does he start drawing pentagrams on the walls of his palaces or proclaiming himself a servant of Satan. John makes it very clear that his beef is with Pope Innocent III, not with God or with the Christian faith per se. He continues to make donations to religious institutions like abbeys, on the understanding that the monks there will pray for his soul, once prayers for souls are allowed again. This seems like a sensible way to hedge his bets, considering that his own brother, young Henry, died from a suspected act of God shortly after looting some churches. So John operates a sort of have-cake-eat-cake cake response to the interdict. He refuses to bow to Innocent and appoint Stephen Langton as Archbishop, but he doesn't go mad and totally tear down the English church. He just accepts Innocent's sentence and watches the cash roll in. Historians have tried over the years to work out exactly how much profit John makes out of the interdict. It's tricky, 
because for the years in question some vital government records have gone missing. But a decent estimate is about £100,000. As usual, it's hard to say exactly how much this figure would be worth today, but to give you a sense, 100 grand was about the cost of Richard the Lionheart's crusade to the Holy Land, and it was more or less what Richard paid to the German Emperor, Henry VI, to get out of jail. It's the sort of coin you need to drop if you have notions of changing the world. And John has notions of changing the world all right. His pot of cash marked Revenge on Philip is growing by the day. Sooner or later, he's determined that the profits of the interdict will be put to good use on the battlefield. But before he can get to that, John has another matter to deal with. It doesn't concern the English church, but it does concern John's dirty conscience. The ghost of Arthur of Brittany is about to come back to haunt him. And that's next time on This Is History. <laughs>